on Lumpen Radio. And good morning once again. Welcome to I-94, Lumpen Radio's Books and Literature Show. As always, I am Jamie Trecker. I'm joined by Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Michael Sack. Hello, everybody. And today we are joined by two people from the content curation team, Kelly Griffin. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning. And Steve Spazzato. Hey. And we're going to be talking about new books, libraries, and we've got a kind of a grab bag of titles today. Uh, let's kick it around here. Uh too bad that Steve's mic is too loud. I'm sorry, Steve. We don't want to. We don't want to overwhelm everybody. We have, we have a grab bag of titles for everybody today. Is that we're, better? It's much better. We're going to be talking about uh, Anna Kavan's book Ice. We're going to be talking about the works of Charles Williford, Don Carpenter. But let's just throw it open right now. Kelly and Steve, you guys work for a certain uh, firm here in the city of Chicago. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what content curation means? Because the very the very title kind of makes me want to Ralph on the floor. Yeah, you're not the first. Okay. Uh, so it's a combination of. Uh, ordering the books and other materials for the library and um, also kind of curating what goes on the website. Okay. So, I mean, in this modern day and age with so many people uh, actually using a website, that's a good thing. How important is digital, uh, digital access to a public library? Uh, extremely important. Yeah, that's, that's how we want to make sure we have access for everybody the way meet them where they need. And what kind of stuff do people actually, uh, do you find access on your website because I know in some smaller libraries you get people checking out ebooks and stuff like that. Do people use uh, a library website as kind of an all-purpose information engine? Um, not like Google, but they, they, they know to come to look at our catalog for pretty much any kind of book that they're looking for and um, I'd say what's what, what kind of amazes me about what's so hot right now is is audiobooks. Audiobook oh, yeah. with the podcast era, everybody's got headphones on all the time. Audio is are there super limit, hot. Are there limitations on checkouts with with ebooks <clears throat> and audiobooks, or can like an infinite number of people check out? There are e-book? limits. Oh, there yeah. are. Yeah, um, we have licensing, or rather, our vendor has licensing agreements with um, the publishers. So, oh, okay. pretty much, we can loan one quote unquote copy. Oh, of something really? at a time. So there's like holds list. Man. And, and then they vanish or if, like after the X amount of checkouts, right? Isn't that how the ebooks work? That you can only check them out so many times and then they're not, we, don't, we have no access to them anymore. Is that how it works or is it unlimited? Um, some of them. Some of them we would have to repurchase after a certain number of circs. And some of them we own forever. Oh, so, okay. So some of the books, basically you, you guys, th- that's a really interesting question. So some, some of you guys, some of the books uh, that come in are basically only for a short term, and you actually don't own them at all. You're just kind of borrowing them like somebody borrows a book from a library. So they call this the wild, wild west of e-publishing, and there's a, just a host of different models out there. Some license agreements allow you to pretty much offer it forever, and others allow you to offer it 26 circulations, and others allow you to offer it for a year. What, what's the benefit to that? I mean, is this just a, pub, a money ploy by publishers, or I mean, is there a reason for it? Because generally, in the, in, you know, once you, a library buys a book, the whole point is to have it accessible to the public. Well, yeah, I mean, the, there was great controversy around that in the beginning. Uh, a lot of publishers were uncomfortable with making these things available to libraries at all in the first place, and so libraries really had to agitate and fight for our patrons, for our, our right to have access and provide access. And um, publishers are just trying a whole host of models to see what works for them and their bottom line, what makes them feel comfortable, and that what works for their authors. 
That's interesting. I actually wanted to open this up a little bit, and since we've got three actual librarians in the show for the first time as opposed to just one, libraries have been under enormous pressure financially, especially in this city. And I wonder if you guys could just talk a little briefly, not you know as a representative of a certain library, but it, just your own p- personal opinion. What What is the state of a library in this day and age? Because we keep hearing so much about costs being cut, uh, collections being slashed, and, and I think some people don't really necessarily understand the central importance of a library in our society. Well, I, I will say I know there is a perception out there among some people that what libraries they must have gone the way of the dinosaurs. But um, you know, post recession, libraries um, were more in demand than ever, and usage has been really, really high. It goes up every year. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we're we're happy to see that we have a, a big audience. And what's driving that? You mentioned podcasts and, and audiobooks. Is that the hottest thing that's being checked out of a library right now? Can I? I just wanted to add something. You know. I, Back in, let's say, 2005, you go to a library conference and then people would be like, everything will be digital by 2015. Are you guys prepared? Remember that? That's just like that doomsayers. uh, uh, I'm just amazed there's such a thing as a library conference. Oh, (laughs) Jamie, you don't even know. (laughs) I I have spoken to international library conferences. um, And one of them, actually, it was in Europe. And there was a guy there that wants to have a unified system for all ebooks so there would be you know everybody it would be and it was for europe but he was saying that there would be a european standard for all so like not not one publisher couldn't do it this way one publisher because it's a mess right i mean it's a it's a difficult process but the other thing what we're learning too is people are going back to analog or hard copy because um, they don't like reading on tablets. And I've, I, I get people every week, they're like, I tried this, I hate it, give me a book. You know. So. Well, you can't read a tablet in the bathtub, I can tell you that from personal experience. I heard beach, too. Like the, Some of them are bad on the beach. A lot the of them light. are bad on the beach. I will say what the, the best thing that an e-reader is used for, and I will say not to say a specific manufacturer of an e-reader, but uh, a certain Apple product is outstanding for reading comic books. <laughs> it, it really is the best because the colors are super sharp and you can you can zoom in and stuff like that. I don't like it for actually reading a physical book, though, uh, black and white and paper. And I don't like another certain manufacturer's so-called e-paper. Uh, uh, my wife has one of those, and I find it really disgusting. I have never read an e-book. I haven't either. Once. Really? Uh, <laughs> no, never tried. I, I Even when I am reading an article online and it's somewhat lengthy, I print it out because mm-hmm. I, I just but reading you it. Out, you print out your emails, though. That's true. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm one of those. You're one of those guys. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, actually, one of the things we were talking about today is books that we were going to bring to the table because content curation, you know, that's, that's what we're talking about. And we've all brought, I think, what, four or five books that we wanted to talk about today. Why don't we start, Jeremy, with you? You've got a kind of interesting book uh, with a cover that does not actually belie its contents. A, it's actually a classic from Anna Kaven. Uh, if you guys don't know who that is, she is a – we've got a bunch of dead authors, I believe. I don't know about your authors, but our authors are all dead. Oh, they're very much uh, uh, Kelly's uh, is. Steve's is alive. Oh, you, you broke the curve. So um, Anna was uh, a drug addict and a socialite and a very wealthy heiress, I believe, in England of the um, kind of the late uh, Edwardian period, mid-period, uh, 50s and 60s, correct? Is yeah. Right? she. she uh, well, this was the 50th anniversary of the novel, and she died that year. Okay. Um, so she would have been she would have been with uh, with uh, QE two. So I'm just checking the publication date. So this was a, yeah 67. 67. So it's 51 years old. Okay. Uh, she's an interesting character. Um, she started out writing novels under the name. She was born Helen Woods, and then she wrote under her name Helen Ferguson, which was her married name. 
And after that marriage broke up, she changed. She uh, acquired this pen name. She's uh, sh- she had uh, I believe three suicide attempts and two marriages. And then her final um, her final marriage was to a doctor that provided her with the heroin that she was addicted right. to for her entire life. A lot of people think she committed suicide, but she actually died from heart failure. And I'm actually laughing to myself because uh, um, I'm known for CPL for liking dark stuff and. This past year, um, we had a conference, and I had like six books, and they were all about murder. And I would just be like, oh, this next one's about murder. And, and Kelly and I share the love of true crime, so that was kind of a amusing antidote. Yes, that is true. Yes. So tell us a little bit about what Ice, Ice for those of you who don't know, is considered her best-known work, and it's a classic. And we're going to have a reading, of course, as always, provided by, by Miss Shannon Van Volt in a moment. But take us through what this book is and why, why you were attracted to it, because it is kind of a lost classic. Yeah. Saying I'm attracted to it makes me kind of creepy because it's a really creepy book. But no, I, 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 it's it's amazing. I've never really read a book quite like this. When you, when you describe it, it sounds like a traditionally like dystopian science fiction novel. It's about this creeping ice that's enveloping everything. And the, the narrator, who's unnamed, is chasing someone who's just known as the girl trying to rescue her from the warden. And she's repeatedly... Uh, abused and beaten and terrible things happen to her and then he'll catch up with her and then she'll disappear again and at this whole time the ice is continually creeping and and just enveloping everything and then society has moved south um to an unnamed territory but if you're looking at it's probably south america because it's warm and it's all it's under siege you know everyone's fighting you know for the warm areas because the entire world's being enveloped in ice and there's a few um criticisms uh, that I've read uh, one of it it's an analogy to heroin addiction um, the all-consuming aspects of addiction mental illness also um, and then uh, Kate Zambrino uh, I'm sure some of you are familiar with her she wrote the afterword and she just said it was like her looking in a mirror and I, I think that was a good representation I, I'm not one to try and figure out what other people's analogies are but I like to look at it like, um, for me, I just looked at it as a surreal kind of dreamscape uh, science fiction novel. That's the way I approach it. I, I don't always get into the psychology of, of particular novels. Well, it, it came out in a period when a number of other British authors, I'm thinking of J.G. Ballard specifically, Ballard, yeah. wrote books about uh, dystopian worlds, uh, burning world. He didn't write one. He wrote about the drowned world as well, uh, not necessarily one about ice. Uh, the Russian authors were also working in that period. I think Sorokin's uh, – it was a little later, Vladimir Sorokin, but he was also writing uh, books about frozen worlds. Was there just, – just to throw this out there before we get to the reading, do you think there was something in the kind of – air at this point because you had Christopher Priest, J.G. Ballard, you had her, a host of British authors writing about dystopian fiction in an era, actually a post-war era in Britain, which compared to what Britain had gone through before, people forget this, but rationing didn't end in Britain until the, the late 1950s after World War II. You would have think, thought this was kind of an era of prosperity and, and rebirth, and instead we had all this literature in, in England and Scotland about dystopian, horrible things happening. And to me, that's a, that's a, a strange kind of juxtaposition. Well, I think after you know surviving the war, and I, I don't think Anna did, I think she was uh, She's kind of a jet setter. Roaming. She was too wealthy to be. In yeah, the war, she yes. was roaming yeah. around the world, and I don't think she was affected uh, as the wealthy often aren't by the war. Um, but I think 
that could be a tie-in. You know, those that era was very much um, an era of deprivation. And even though things got better eventually, I still think that people, you know, it's kind of like now um, when we're living in a time of, you know, ecological despair, people are worried about, you know, the dystopian novels become um, extraordinarily popular. And I think people want to look at situations that are worse than the ones we are in and hmm. perhaps that might have been the popularity that's just my opinion i have no idea okay. but she also gets you know burroughs gets thrown around a little bit with her because it's uh two junkies yeah two junkies and also because it doesn't really have a, a you know a linear plot at all right yeah well let's take a, a quick reading from this as always uh, music is provided by tonight uh, music is actually provided by color card but the readings are by shanna van volt this is a reading from annika van's ice Under the trees, it got darker and darker. I kept losing sight of the path. In the end, I lost it entirely and came out at a different place. I was close to the wall. It was impressive, intact, no break in it anywhere. I saw the black shapes of sentries posted along the top. Two of them were approaching each other and would cross quite near me. I stood still in the shadow of the black trees where I could not be seen. Their steps were loud. The hard frost magnified every sound. They met, stamped their feet, exchanged passwords, separated again. I walked on when the footsteps grew fainter. I had a curious feeling that I was living on several planes simultaneously. The overlapping of these planes was confusing. Huge round boulders as big as houses, resembling the heads of decapitated giants, were lying near, where they had fallen long ago from the mountainside. Suddenly I heard voices, looked everywhere but could see no one. The sound seemed to come from among the boulders, so I went to investigate. A light-flowered yellow in the blue dusk, I was looking at a cottage, not a massive rock. People were talking inside it. I heard yells, crashes, the frightened neighing of horses, all the noises of battle. Arrows flew in clouds, war clubs thumped. There was a loud clashing of steel. Strangely dressed men came at the wall in waves, swarming up it, using their feet as well as their hands, holding cutlasses in their teeth. Agile as gorillas, they came in their thousands. However many were thrown back, a new wave always came on. Finally, the defenders of the wall were exterminated and the second line defenses forced back. Invaders already inside opened the gates and the rest burst in like a tidal wave. People barricaded themselves in their houses. In the town, there was utter chaos, hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the narrow streets, savage, meaningless cries like the cries of wild animals resounding between the walls. The strangers raced through the town like madmen, pouring wine down their throats, slaughtering all they met, every man, woman, child, animal. The wine streamed down their faces, mingled with sweat and blood so that they looked like demons. A little snow fell. This seemed to excite them into a frenzy. They laughed insanely, tried to catch the falling flakes in their mouths. The horsemen carried long lances with pennants or feathers attached. Hacked-off heads were impaled on these lances, sometimes infants or dogs. Huge fires blazed everywhere as it was bright as day. The air was full of the reek of burning of charred wood and old dust. As people were smoked out of their homes, they were massacred by the enemy. Many preferred to die in the flames. I had no weapon and searched for something with which I could defend myself. I was in a street where dead horses had been piled to form a barricade, among them a man who had been killed with his mount. Before I could repair the damage, a troop of horsemen galloped along the street with fearful clattering din, waving their lances, yelling their senseless cries. 
I threw myself flat on the ground, hoping they had not seen me, expecting the worst. As they came up, one of them jabbed his long lance ahead of him into the dead rider, dislodging the body so violently that it fell on top of me, probably saving my life. I kept perfectly still while the whole troop went careening past, rolling their bloodshot, demented, animalic eyes. When they had gone, I pushed the corpse aside and got up to go and search for the girl. I had not much hope of finding her. I knew the fate of girls in sacked towns. The sword was loose now. I pulled it out easily. I had never used such a weapon and tried slashing at some of the bodies I passed. The thing was heavy and hard to handle, but I discovered the balance and began to get a feel of it as I walked, thus gaining some much-needed confidence. As it happened, I was not attacked. Most of the fighting was going on in the lower streets around the harbor forts, which appeared to be holding out. When I saw anyone, I took cover and in the general confusion escaped observation. The high house was almost burned out already, only the shells still standing. Smoke and flames spouted toward the sky, the whole interior was incandescent. I approached as close as I could, but was driven back by the smoke and the intense heat. It was quite impossible to get inside. In any case, nobody could have survived in such an inferno. My face was scorched, sparks were smoldering in my hair. I crushed them out with my hands. And that was a reading from Anna Kavan's book, Ice. Jeremy, uh, kind of a, as you mentioned, kind of a surreal little novel, and I know we want to wrap uh, Kelly's book into this real quickly, but just take us through a little bit of what that passage was and, and why you chose that passage. That was just a good example of the multitudes of settings. The The setting changes pretty much continuously, but there, that was um, one of the ones where he ended up outside of a of an area where they were warring, which I was mentioning earlier. There was one other thing, too, I want to mention, too. So the, the narrator's obsessed with the girl, but he also studies a group called Indris, which are singing lemurs. And this comes up in the narrative every once in a while. And that's this... You know, and he'll, he'll be driving along and he'll hear the lemurs singing. I don't really know what that represents. I, I, I don't even want to wrap my head around that, but I just want to throw it in there because it is kind of a, a bizarre thing to obsess about. It but certainly is. Yeah, there was, there, that, his two obsessions are the girl, as she is known, and singing lemurs. Um, Maybe she has a monkey on her back. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Wait, uh, lemurs are monkeys? Well, sort of, yeah. yeah. Okay, I thought yeah. they were like... Frogs? No, <laughs> not not no. I thought there were these little furry things. I'm th- I don't. They are oh. furry. They're thinking of ferrets. Well, and, not, I, and I small. Know, I know. All right, guys, let's not get derailed here. Kelly, lemmings. Yeah, that's lemmings. what I was They're thinking not of. Lemmings. Kelly, you also brought a book. We don't have a reading from it, but tell us what you brought to the table here. Uh, I brought "I'll Be Gone in the Dark," and this is Michelle McNamara's book about um, a serial killer that was active in California in the 70s and 80s. Um, so this is a true crime book. This is a true crime. And yeah. who is Michelle McNamara? Michelle McNamara was, um, she started out kind of as a blogger. She's known, she did True Crime Diary, and she would discuss cold cases with people um, on that blog. And she started to research this um, book. It started, it became an um, article in Los Angeles Magazine, and then she expanded it into a book. But she died while she was writing this book. She died in 2016. So it's kind of incomplete, but they've um, organized it in a way that it does tell a complete story. Okay. And what is the case about? Um, There was a 
a guy that um, was active in several parts of California um, in the 70s and 80s. He committed 50 sexual assaults and 10 murders. Um, they did not cri- they did not tie all these crimes together until the early 2000s with DNA evidence. They actually thought there were like maybe multiple um, serial rapists and killers mm-hmm. in the East Bay, Sacramento, but then they tied all the the cases together with DNA. Okay. What what attracts you to the true crime genre in general? I find murder strangely comforting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure. You, I, I think you mean reading about murders. Yes. Yes. That's. I'm right next to her. Clarify. Yes. The police station is down the street, so I'm, I am obliged if you are a you know got blood on your hands. Let me just yes. see your hands for a second. Okay. Good. Um, no. T- t- it, that is a common thing. You know, I happen to read a lot of uh, detective novels and uh, science fiction. And uh, genre novels tend to be kind of gory and bloody. I mean, it's, you know, Shakespeare's rather gory and bloody. But what is it, what about it is comforting? Because it's a it's a strange thing to say, but that's, that's something that is a very common thing among readers. Yeah. I mean, I read all sorts of uh, true crime and detective novels. Uh, I, f- I find uh, when things are resolved... That is very satisfying, but I'm also, I mean, this is not a resolved, uh, there's, this is not resolved. Um, I think just, I mean, I think same thing with what Jeremy was saying to some extent, like the world is pretty terrible. So if I kind of immerse myself in something that's just truly horrific, mm-hmm. um, I can come back and feel pretty good about how the world <laughs> is working maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Why this book in particular? Um, I, not, not any reason. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I read all true crime. Um, I think this book is really great in the sense that Michelle McNamara isn't really doing anything where she's trying to be gratuitous or, you know, sensational. Um, she's talking about her own obsession. She grew up in Oak Park. And witnessed, um, or I, there was somebody murdered when she was 14 that was unresolved. Mm-hmm. And she talks about her own, like, obsession with true crime. So it's it's not just a reportage. It's it's really a personal story, too. And I just was attracted to those. Did she die a young woman in 2016, or was she? She was in her 40s. She's oh. Incidentally, she was married to Patton Oswalt, <laughs> if you know who he is. Oh, yes, she died suddenly. Of, yes. Um, yes. She yes, had an yes. un... Undiagnosed, like hematoma or something like that. Yeah, heart condition, I believe. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. That's right. She was. So she was the late, uh, the comedian Patton Oswalt's late wife. Correct. That's correct. Oh, one of the reasons that I invited Kelly and Steve on the show um, is because they're two of the people whose um, literary taste that I, well, not taste, but uh, dedication to literature I respect a lot. Um, You would think all librarians read, but they don't. Uh, I've found out. um, And uh, Kelly and I, kind of bonded over our true crime and uh uh she we did some genre studies together and then steve and they get a lot of advanced copies so i'm whenever i'm downtown i'm in his office like what's this what's this you know and they were always very uh very courteous to me allowing me to uh but i uh kelly and i totally bonded over our I love for true crime. It's like my uh, secret obsession. Secret so. obsession? Yeah. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> did, Pat Oswalt worked on finishing this book, didn't he? Is that correct? He did. Um, he 
he there's actually interesting there there is a little podcast about this book and it's mostly about how this book was completed to some extent um and he did get her stuff together Mm -hmm. um they talked to her publisher and they decided that there was enough to to actually um make a book um he wrote the afterword and i think he was involved a little bit in organizing you know how it was gonna um but he didn't really like write anything he didn't like continue her work necessarily but yeah who finished it no one i mean it's it's unfinished oh is it yeah i mean they like they like basically say at the end of the chapter this is like all Michelle wrote about this, so well, we're going to go to the next. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. And but and there's no resolution in this book. We don't know who the killer is, or we do. We don't. Um, and you know, she was sitting on like, I mean, she describes one night in a hotel room where she's gotten four thousand papers, four thousand you know um, sheets of paper from a policeman, and she like locks herself in a hotel room and is like going through the stuff. There is tons of evidence that is related to all these crimes. Mm-hmm. So um, HBO is making a docu-series about this um, book, mm-hmm. I believe, and I think there's a sense that like someone could possibly still solve this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of stuff. It just hasn't really been gone through. Okay, but the book kind of clearly seems to point out that it is one person. Yeah, the, the DNA evidence ties the 50 sexual assaults and 10 murders to one person. To one wow. person, all right. And w- just to take us through one, one more time, the name of this book is by Michelle Goldberg, and what's the name of the book? It's by Michelle McNamara, Sorry, Michelle and McNamara. it's called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer. Great. Michelle Goldberg is actually the columnist for the New York Times, which is probably <laughs> okay. why I flashed on that. Um, you guys are listening to I-94. We need to take a quick break for the folks that make the station possible. We'll be right back after the break with more. <laughs> Oh, my God. John, are you okay? Jeez, Janine. I've been falling down around here for what seems like forever. Yeah. I- I'm sorry, Johnny, but I had to sell a lot of stuff. Lumpin' Radio needs money, and I'm telling you, that tin ceiling is worth I know, Janine. I know. But can't we tell people to become members at lumpinradio.com? Do we have to sell all the rooms, too? That would be a lot easier than pulling out all the copper pipes, yeah. Man, I wish people would just go to lumpenradio.com. It would be nice not to get hurt around here for... What the hell, Janine? You sold my sofa too? John, I have a problem. Be a member. Go to lumpenradio.com. Punk rock roars back into the co-prosperity sphere April 27th with a super secret powerhouse lineup. This special show, brought to you by the Jagoffs, who present Punk Rock and Donuts, will be a spring ripper, with the bands playing through the famous Lumptronic sound system. It's live, it's punk, and it's April 27th, only at CPS. This noisy little show benefits Lumpin' Radio. Lumpin' Radio is brought to you in part by Maria's Package Goods and Community Bar. Located at 960 West 31st Street in Bridgeport, Maria's presents the DJs of Lumpin' Radio every Wednesday night. More information about the DJ schedules on Lumpin' Radio's Facebook page. Hours and information about Maria's Package Goods and Community Bar is at community.com.
Canadian post-punkers Preoccupations will play Co-Prosperity Sphere in a special showcase April 28th. Brought to you by The Empty Bottle and backed up by grimy rockers Odonis Odonis, this will be Preoccupations' final show in Chicago. Preoccupations presented by The Empty Bottle. It's April 28th at The Sphere. This benefits Lumpen Radio. When the alarm went off on Monday morning, I shut it off and looked out the window. Fog. For breakfast, I poached half a dozen eggs and toasted some English muffins. Afterwards, I drove down to the lot and parked the Buick. It was early. The colored flags and streamers hanging from the overhead wires were limp in the soft dampness of the air. There was no wind and the fog was so thick it was difficult to see from one end of the lot to the other. I crossed Van Ness and got a cup of coffee at the corner shop. When I returned to the lot, Tad Tate was there. Tad is a real salesman and a good guy to work with. He has a huge paunch and always wears a suit with a vest. Usually he has an unlit, well-chewed cigar in his mouth and a little black notebook in his hand. I like Tad. We understand each other. Well, Russell, he said, we better get some soldiers from the Presidio down here for guard duty today. People will be stealing cars and we won't even know it. They always get a steal, don't they? That's the idea. Let's see if you can get rid of that 1938 LaSalle today, will you? Tired of looking at it. If you take that Cadillac price off it, I will. Sell it for whatever you want. I'm sick of looking at it. Okay. Madeline in yet? She's in the office. I won't be back till around 11. If you really need me, never mind. I'll be back at 11. He squeezed himself and his paunch into his MG and roared through the gravel of the lot and into the fog. I went into the office. Madeline was already banging it out on the typewriter. We have 12 different forms to fill on every car sold. She pounds the stuff out day after day and knows the business inside and out. I'd never given her a tumble because it doesn't pay in this business, but I intended to get around to it one day. She's a handsome woman and so healthy, but she practically busts out of her clothes. When I'm around her, I just keep my mind on other things. Good morning, I said. Oh, I see you found your way through the fog. You never knew me to miss a day, did you? Just what do you do with all your money, Russell? I spend it. Where's Andy? Isn't he out there? I didn't see him. He checked in. He probably went out for coffee. Okay. I went outside. Andy was our colored mechanic. He had been with Tad for 15 years. I looked around the lot. I found him removing an old spotlight from a Buick Super. Andy, I said, when you get some time, work on that old Essex in the fourth row. Who's going to buy that? I sold it yesterday. What kind of a job you want? The best you can do with it. The engine's good, and with a little luck, it'll last two or three years. I'll do what I can, but it won't be worth much. And Andy, rub off the $75 price and mark it $250. $250? That's what I said. Mr. Haxby, sometimes I think you ain't got a conscience. He took the spotlight and headed for his workshop by the office. I walked to the driveway and watched the traffic pound up Van Ness. It was heavy. The fog slowed them down. Once in a while, you could spot an idiot going full speed up the hill, passing people on the right. Two colored soldiers in a maroon Dodge crept along the curb. They wanted to park, but were hesitant because the curb was painted red. Just pull on in, I shouted and waved to them. After the car was parked, they got out and walked over to where I was standing. We just want to look around, one said. Sure. You got any caddies? The other one said. 
Sure. Where are you men stationed? Oh, we're out at Camp Stone and just got back from Japan. I sold them a Cadillac. It was easy. They were driving a borrowed car, but they had enough money for a down payment, and that was all I was interested in. The way Tad works, it is foolproof. If we get the one-third down payment, we turn the buyer over to AAA Acme Finance Company. They take up the loan, and we get our money right then. The AAA has to worry about collecting the other two-thirds, but they do collect. These two soldiers were the kind I like to latch onto. With plenty of money in their pockets and just back from overseas, they like the looks of all the cars. After being away from the United States for two or three years, the model that was new when they left still looks to them like a new car. In 15 minutes, I had made $200. The returning colored soldiers almost always buy a Cadillac. And that was a reading from The Hip Priest of California by the late author Charles Williford. And that uh, is actually a book that I brought to the table. So at the risk of blathering on about it, I should just mention who Charles Williford was. Williford, as you might have noticed, this book came out in 1958. It was one of his first books. He was a Southern author. Uh, You might have noticed some of the... uh, antique language, let's say. You're going to have some of that also in uh, the book that Mike uh, chose, Don Carpenter's Hard Rain Falling. Uh, we, we didn't censor that language, but please uh, take note of it and uh, note that it was a, a book very much of its era. Williford um, actually was a Tulane University professor who started out writing uh, kind of erotic, racy pulp novels. I believe uh, uh, Fast Wives was one of his titles. He he wrote a bunch of sleazy titles. And then he transitioned into writing kind of these strange, hard-boiled books. Uh, Most famously, the series featuring the Miami detective Hoke Mosley. For those of you who are not familiar with that series, uh, I highly recommend it. Mosley is a very interesting and kind of esoteric uh, detective. They're actually going to try to make a series, I believe, for Netflix with uh, Paul Giamatti as Hoke Mosley, and for some reason (laughs) that didn't uh, go through. Hoke, as you read the books, um, he is a very straightforward but strange character, and you kind of realize as you read the the four novels that Hoke, while he's a clever detective, is probably also insane. Uh, And that comes across, uh, he, he, uh, for example, he wears a paper jumpsuit that he washes every day. He has two of them to make his life easier. And in fact, in the unfinished final Hoke Mosley novel that his agent, uh, Wilford's agent, begged him not to publish, uh, Hoke Mosley actually murders his two children and buries them. So Which that one he, is that, Jamie? Do you it's, know? It's a, I cannot remember the title. Jeremy Perks. <laughs> it, was, it was recycled, I believe, for Miami Blues, but okay. the original one of it, he, um, he, kills, he murders his two teenage girl children. Uh, and uh, buries them in, at the beach and then waits to go to prison where he, he thinks his life is going to be simpler. He's got a quest for simplicity. So this novel is actually kind of interesting, The Hip Priest of California. It's about a car salesman, uh, and the title comes from a caption in a Life magazine article about it's the a car salesman. Title. Yes. Uh, Russell, who is the, the titular character of that book, um, begins to have an affair with a woman who is caring for her severely mentally disabled husband. Uh, he has contracted syphilis and is, uh, is mad, basically. Uh, Russell uh, conspires to have her husband fired from his job at the stockyards, gets him out of the picture, and then uh, will dump her later in the book. And all that really isn't to the point. What is interesting about The Hip Priest of California is that it goes for about 90 pages in a very straightforward, hard-boiled style, and then stops. And all of a sudden, it turns into a play. Uh, the, t- uh, the character has a dream uh, in which he uh, is on a stage play. And the characters are talking to one another as in stage directions. That's the one that Research published with. Uh, it was, it's the, is it High Priest or Hip? 
I'm sorry, high priest, high priest, high priest, and then wild wives on the other correct. side. Correct, wild right? wives. You yep. flip it over. That's correct. I remember. And it I came out as a Williford omnibus a couple of years ago from Penguin as well. I wonder if that is uh, still in print. I also wanted to mention too one of my favorite books of all time by is by Charles Williford, Cockfighter, which right. was a if you want to talk about like a precursor to Gritlet, mm-hmm. that that's one of the although animal lovers it is it is pretty brutal yeah, so. you don't if you're if you're all of an animal lover you do not want to read that particular book wilford had quite a dense oeuvre actually he ended up publishing i believe about 10 or 12 novels during his time and not all of which were the wild wives category either but he's an interesting guy because he is considered one of uh the most humane hard-boiled novels these these are kind of hard-boiled sort of semi-noir novels they're not classic noir classic noir everybody dies in a classic noir so that's that's not the case especially on the hook mosley series but he like ross mcdonald tended to focus on more of the minutiae of interactions between people if you read the ross mcdonald novels they're all about family issues and how those things mess you up in williford's novels they tend to be about everyday longings that turn into massive problems for people for example in in the high priest of california he is um He's obsessed with this woman who is married to somebody else who – he doesn't even seem to like her. But he, for some reason, he is obsessed with her, and it, this obsession grows and grows until he is basically throwing everything away to wreck her life and we suspect his own. And that's a, that's a pretty strange uh, thing. But in all of Wilford's books, there's always this one little tiny kernel that blows and propels the narrative into something bigger. And I think that kind of goes into the book that you brought to the table, uh, Steve, because you brought a book about post-9-11 New York. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, Asymmetry, a novel by Lisa Halliday, and it's a debut. Um, And it's pretty incredible, I got to (laughs) say. It's written in a couple parts. So part one is called Folly. And um, it's got a setup that doesn't seem like anything too unusual at first. You've got um, Alice, who's a young publishing assistant in her 20s in New York City. And she is approached by a guy in the park in New York. Turns out he's uh, an author in his 70s. Uh, Think Philip Roth. It's not Philip Roth, but everybody who reads it is picturing Philip Roth. His name is Ezra Blazer. He's in his 70s. And they they take up kind of a May-December romance. And then in part two, you've got the story of an Iraqi American who was born, uh, his, his parents were immigrants to America. He was born in a plane over the U.S. and has dual citizenship. And it kind of plays, that section is called Madness. And the, the two parts when you're done are brought together with a little coda, part three at the end, which is a radio interview. And um, a radio interview with that Ezra Blazer, that Philip Roth figure. And there's a hint in there in part three about how the parts fit together. Hmm. And who is this author? You said it's a debut novel. Who is this person? So Lisa Halliday, um, that's a great question. I would like to know more about her myself. Um, She won the Whiting Award for this book before it was published, which is pretty prestigious. And um, How can you win an award before the book's published? (laughs) The manuscript gets around, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. and uh, so this is a de- debut, and that's, that's one thing that's really amazing to me about this book is it's written with such mastery and assurance. You, you, you finish this book, and it's a puzzle about how these pieces fit together. You, you, you finish a book, you always want to think about how, the interpretation, how does it come together. But in this book, you, she leaves you no choice. You get to the end, and it's up to you. You've got to figure out how this all goes together. Um, and she just has such mastery about the way, the way she handles this story. And talk about a little bit about her style, because, I mean, we, we haven't really 
dug into that in, in many of these books. But what what attracted you to it about the way she writes in particular? Yeah. So for one thing, I forgot to mention, um, in real life, Lisa Halliday actually had an affair with Philip Roth. Um, oh, well, that's a, <laughs> oh, I read about this book. This yeah, yeah. yeah. She's um, young, too, right? She is young. Yeah. And she says in, in interviews that... Um, this is a fictionalized account of it's Roth. A, a little bit, yeah. yeah. And she, you know, she makes clear this character is not Philip Roth. Um, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's you know it's part part of the you know she's playing some some literary games in the book, um, so that's that's one thing you should. This is know. why you should never sleep with authors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Kiss and tell. Mm-hmm. Um, except it's not, and it's 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 so much more than that. But um, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> well, what the, what attracted you about the way that this book in particular is written? Yeah. Okay. So the first part reads like a dream. I mean, it, it reads really fast. It's charming. There's this sly comedy in there. I mean, she's got this um, running gag about Nobel Prize announcements coming out, and Ezra has not won. Um, <laughs> if you know anything about Philip Roth, that's it's it's pretty funny. He, um, did he ever never won it? He's never won. And there's this there's this legend that goes around. Every year come Nobel season that, that Philip Roth used to, you know, make the special trip into his agent's office in the car, got all dressed up, ready for interviews, and the announcement would be made and it was never him. I don't know if that's true, but that's kind of the legend. Strikes me as being true. Yeah, it could be. Um, so, you know, that pulled me right in because I've read some Philip Roth and I, I was interested to see her take on it. And it's it's fun. It glides by. And then you get to section two madness about this Iraqi American and it is like the complete flip side. Everything's completely different. The pro style changes. It becomes um, something a little bit heavier, but completely smart and, and fascinating. And then when you put the two together, you start to see the correlations between the two stories. And she's woven these hints in both sections of thing, these parallels that go together. And so these, these characters who seem like they couldn't be, you know, they must be worlds apart. You start to see the connections. I wanted to ask you, just since this is a good point to do it, how do you guys in your day jobs choose what books to try to put in front of the general public? You see a lot of good books like this, and there, there are just hundreds and hundreds of new titles that come out literally every month. How do you guys winnow this stuff down and say, you know, this really deserves a place in the shelf, or this one this one doesn't? Or this is a book that I particularly may not care for, but it's something that is going to be of interest to patrons. Yeah, that's the whole art. We were talking about that a little before the show. And, and what I always say is people say, you know, wow, it must be fun to get to pick what goes in the library. But you're really not, you don't have a choice whether or not to buy most titles. You, you need to buy them. The question is um, trying to d- anticipate demand and figure out how many copies are you going to need in order to, to have demand on uh, the date that it drops. Mm-hmm. We also, as the managers, we get to pick, we get X amount of funding per quarter, it's quarter, right? And then we can pick, like, the particular library I work at has a lot of uh, books and translation, indie presses and music books. It's kind of like our, and different libraries in the city will have different, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking Specialized for? Specialized collections. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, special collections. And I mean, I think Kelly is a good place to ask you because you've got a particular interest in, in true crime and stuff like that. How do you winnow through kind of the, the garbage? You know, because there are a lot of books out there that, that just aren't yeah. worth, worth, reading how, do you guys have to spend hours and hours actually leafing through this stuff and make a decision or do you guys rely on other accounts or stuff like that oh we definitely rely on other accounts and when we're getting ready for a new like 
set of books, um, we get a lot of feedback from reading journals, knowing what's buzzy, you know, so we don't have to necessarily read everything to decide if it's good. We're, we kind of are, are work like we're already working towards, well, you know, this is getting good reviews. Let's pick it up. Let's see what's going on here and um, promoting stuff that we think will be of interest to the readers. How much time do you guys uh, spend curled up in a chair, goofing off, reading, and pretending it's for work? Not very much, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, we wish. We've got one last book, and we, we're running out of time, as we always do on this show. Mike Sack brought uh, Don Carpenter's Hard Rain Falling, which has just recently been uh, reissued by the New York Review Press. Um, interesting book. It's another 50s title, if I remember right. I read it a few years ago, and uh, I'd actually forgotten about it until I think it's we, 60s. Is it 60s? New York Review's on fire right now, by the way. They've been yeah. putting out consistently I awesome. honestly have not read a bad book from yeah, New York Review. I just read Fat City over the weekend. Oh, that's a that, great book. Phenomenal. That's a great book. Oh, with wonderful introductions as well yes. <laughs> from contemporary authors, I would add. Yeah, they, they are, um, you know, we don't really like to plug presses, but I will say that they're a house that is putting out an extremely well-curated line. Amazing. A variety of books, everything from books in translation, science fiction, genre books. And, of course, Don Carpenter's book is, is a genre book and a classic. Mike, what, what is this book about before we get to a reading from it? Before, before I talk about it, I have kind of what might be a silly question. When you – Talk about hard-boiled detective fiction. What, what is, where does that phrase come from? Hard. It, that's a great question. Um, it originally came to describe um, the work of guys like uh, Mickey Spillane in the 30s and 40s. And I think it was because the characters, the language was always very terse and to the point and almost kind of simplistic, okay. like a hard-boiled egg. Okay. Um, you know, kind of what you see is, is what you get. Hardboiled fiction is distinct from noir, however, which the two are kind of bandied around together, and it's not correct. In, in a noir book, which is a kind of um, semi-hardboiled fiction, but in a noir, a classic noir, nobody is redeemable. Everybody dies. Okay. That's that's the whole point of a noir: is that n nothing is redemptive. Um, it is it is a view of the world in classic Miltonian uh, terms, with with no possibility of redemption at all. Um, a hardboiled effective fiction, however, can encompass a lot of things, and there's contemporary. Is that more addressing the prose style or the? Yeah, the, uh, it is, but it's also content. Too. It's, it's kind of become a content. You know, the, the, to the typical hardboiled is usually a solo detective, almost always a man, uh, alone on the mean city streets, uh, led down the wrong path by a woman. You know, this is this is the classic kind of Philip Marlowe um, sort of thing. And it's, it's distinct among detective fiction because there are so many varieties of detective fiction. You've got the cozies of like Agatha Christie, which are um, referred to as that's a, a phrase used to describe the, the covering that's on a teapot. And it's, it's a type of fiction that really is meant to appeal to older lady readers. You know, Agatha Christie was the practitioner of it. Uh, and then you've got other puzzle mysteries, you know, and of course, you know, the Sherlock Holmes mysteries mm -hmm. were kind of early puzzle mm -hmm. mysteries. Um, Jamie, you, I got a question. Just mm -hmm. sorry to interrupt you. Sure. So Jim Thompson... He's hard-boiled. Yeah, but he... AF. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he. It, what's interesting about Thompson is a lot of his novels, they don't even always have a detective, but they fall under the higher boil. You know, it's alcoholics, grifters, drifters, right. you know, the kind of like the uh, the other side of society. Right. Um, I think that's... Um, I, and I would say Williford's novels fall under that, too. Yes. You're looking at a... You're not looking at, like... Mom and Pop Mayberry, you know, you're looking at one of, like Hulk Mosley, the um, toothless. The, yeah, nut he, bag, he's yeah. he's always losing his dentures, and his he has <laughs> yeah. these big 
um, uh, upsetting moments throughout the novels where he's, he loses his teeth and he can't find his teeth and he's panicking about his teeth. And it's it's not, it's always, you know, it's it's the uh, kind of the dark side of the detective land. Right. Well, it's marginal people. Marginal, and, and, yeah. That's I think a, that, you know, there's other books that are about marginal people. We talked about, um, you know, Anna Caven and we talked about Burroughs in, in passing. But those aren't classic hard-boiled books. A hard-boiled book is a very specific and almost always American or French. The French have a very strong hard-boiled book. Goodis? Is Goodis French? No, David Goodis is an American from Who Philadelphia. Who wrote Shoot the Piano Player? He did. Okay. And he was, he was Oh, they made a Frenchman made that Correct. movie. Correct. But there are a series of French novels. In fact, actually out from New York Review, uh, it's it's on the tip of my tongue, and I cannot remember it. I will remember it, but Hired, Hired Gun is a fr- – there's there was a series of 70s French detective novels that it's are – It's not Simon. No, it's not George Simenon. He's Belgian. And, but oh, he, okay. he also wrote a series, but not hard-boiled. Okay. George Simenon is the master of the, the classic oh, uh, yeah, they, puzzle mystery. They published a bunch. Yes. Yeah. And Simenon, by the way, if, you, if you've never read George Simenon, he was an extremely prolific author. I believe 400 novels. 500, yes. Something like crazy. that. He wrote, a, he wrote a book almost every six weeks. And, and they are classic. Uh, his, his detective is, a, is, a, um, uh, is just one of the classics of the genre. Hercule Poirot. I think Lethem did a, did a take on the – Hard boiled now. Motherless Brooklyn. He did, but that was also more of a riff on Marvel Comics, too. Well, I would argue. Okay, here's here's your tie-in. Uh, I think Lethem did the intro to that Caven copy. That's uh, correct. Caven copy. Yeah. And Keith Sembrino did the afterwards. Is because really everybody good. has Jonathan Latham's phone number? He's available to do. Uh, My you know. goodness, he he's a blurb on the back of Hard yep. Raid Falling. He's yep. he's everywhere. He's been available. He's his agent. Because he hasn't around. written a good book in ten years. Oh, sting! <laughs> All right, so Don Carpenter. Let's get to this yes. actual book. Uh, what we saw five minutes ago. This this, this book was. Right Recommended to me by Michael Daly, who we hosted oh, at Pilsen Books right. last month. Uh, yeah, crazy man. Cra- Michael? Yeah, crazy, crazy man. man. He's a crazy man. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. sure. Crazy man Daly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a book called Bobby Blue Jacket. We had him on last month. And he, he recommended this book to me, Hard Rain Falling. It's one of his favorites. It's by Don Carpenter. It's Carpenter's first novel, published in, I think, 66 or mm-hmm. 67. Right. And I liked it immediately. Um Fans of Nelson Algren or Jeremy Fat City, you like Fat City, you will you will like Hard Rain Falling. What what happens in this book? Uh, we follow Jack Levitt from conception in 1920s Portland, Oregon, to uh, to his mid to late 20s. We follow him through pool hall hustling, uh, petty crime, prison, multiple times reform school, and his eventual release from San Quentin, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and. One of the things I really like about Don Carpenter's writing, at least in this novel, is he writes very clearly about confused states of mind, mm-hmm. and that was interesting to me. It's tough a, to do. Yeah, we spend a lot of time inside Jack's head. Um, while he's, I think the way Michael put it to me is he liked uh, he liked the internal dialogue that went on while there was external frenzy going on in the scene, and there are a lot of scenes like that, but. Uh, for instance, Jack's in a, in a bullpen at a, at a county jail, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and there's a lot of madness going around. But the 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 narration is is completely coherent and concise, and yet confused at the same time. It's hard to describe, but it was addictive to read for sure. And what what is magnetic about this particular character, though? Jack, uh, <laughs> I, Jeremy, and, and uh, Kelly, you might be able to to relate to this. He he, uh, you, you'll hear it in the reading. He, he might be sociopathic. He has a really hard time with empathy, and uh, 
um, he's constantly struggling throughout the novel to to sympathize with people and not understanding why he can't. That that is the textbook definition of uh, sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we've seen that. Well, we were gonna say Kelly. Oh, I was going to say very appealing. Yes. It's very appealing. Well, sociopaths are appealing people. That's what we have for a president. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, appealing to some. Appealing to some. We are actually, uh, we're almost out of time here. We're going to end with a reading from uh, Don Carpenter's book. Our readings, as always, are by Shanna Van Volt. We want to thank her. Music, thank as you, always, Shana. is from International Anthem Archive. We want to thank them. Has some additional music from the local band Color Card. We do want to thank them. Uh, guys, want to thank Kelly Griffin and Steve Spazzato. Thank from you, guys. Domo uh, arigato, Steven Spazzato. Oh, content, yeah. content curation team at a certain organization that shall not be named, uh, but we do want everybody... I did name it, so I'm sorry. We, we're, we do, busted. we're busted. Yeah. We, we <laughs> do want everybody to uh, patronize their local library. I think we can say that as uh, on the air. Uh, we are back next week with a genuine uh, big guy. He's going to be calling in from, I believe, London. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. Will Self will be on the show uh, next Sunday, and I will try to be a little more awake for that, though I cannot promise. As you can probably hear in the background, it is Record Store Day here at uh, Lumpen Radio, and uh, the record swap is in full effect. Events are always going on here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere, it seems. Hey, for everybody at I-94 and Lumpen Radio, I'm Jamie Trecker for Jeremy Kitchen and Michael Sack. We will see you next week. Uh, MTZ and foreign, uh, foreign, foreign something or others? I don't know. Josh Wolf and Marie are up next. See you next week, guys. It was about this time, three weeks after Jack started working in the kitchen, that Claymore disappeared from San Quentin. Everyone was delighted and began making book on its capture. With not too much else to do that had the spice of life to it, gambling was very important to some of the convicts, and they would bet on almost anything. Of course, the biggest bets were on the men in death row, and of them, the most action was on Carl Chessman, who had been there over four years already, and whose arrogant, intelligent face inspired nearly everyone. To them, to some of them, he was one little man, using his larceny and his brains against the entire machinery of the state. If he finally won, there was an unconscious yearning in many of them that the state, the machinery, all would just fizzle away and the gates open and they could go home. The odds on chessmen at this time were three to four against. Jack saw him once crossing the big yard under escort. He was surprised at how small chessmen were. The odds on Claymore were a little more sentimental. After all, he was an expert in a sense, and so the betting was a flat, even money proposition. The night they heard about it, Billy was excited and nervous in the cell. Man, he said to Jack. Me and that Claymore are connected. I can feel it. What do you mean? Because he's a Negro? Billy rubbed his mouth. He did not look either happy or unhappy, but disturbed. I don't know. When he first come in here and he headed up that pipe, I could feel it, you know? Connected. That's all. From Billy's mood, Jack decided not to ask any more questions and spent the time until lights out reading his history book. Afterward, in the semi-darkness, he heard Billy say from above, That man's got to stay free. Now, this was something Jack could not understand. He knew, of course, that free meant outside the prison and that he himself wanted that, especially when he awakened in the mornings to the cell or stood by the door while the guard at the end of the long walkway pulled down the heavy bar that locked the cells. At such moments, there was a heavy tension in him to just run, run down the gallery past a thousand cells, throw himself on the side and into the court. A pain starting at the edges of his eyes as he sat still for the counter put on his shoes. That he could understand. But not Billy's passionate need for Claymore to stay free. Personal freedom, yes, of course. But why freedom for somebody else? It did not make sense. 
I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured the works of Charles Williford, Anna Coven, and Don Carpenter, with guest spots from CPL acquisition team Steve Sposato and Kelly Griffin. This episode originally aired on April 22, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.